Hi, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the South American Football Show. Today, we'll be breaking down the latest round of World Cup qualifiers in Carnival, as well as previewing next week's matches. I'm your host, Austin Miller, here in Chicago in the United States, where they are mourning another World Cup qualifying loss under tactical genius Bruce Arena. But enough about that. We will get straight into the Carnival action for you. A terrific panel for you tonight. We'll start with Adam Brandon in Arica, Chile who, as we'll get to in a little bit, probably isn't feeling too great today. But Adam, I hope you're at least doing a little bit better today than you might have been last night. Today's certainly been a nicer day than yesterday. And I'm looking forward to getting a few things off my chest in this pod. Well, we'll, we will definitely give you the opportunity to do that in a little bit. We have Simon Edwards in Medellin, Colombia. Simon, don't know if the feeling is maybe as bad as it was in Chile, but certainly not the greatest of results for Colombia yesterday either. Hope you're doing okay, though? Yeah, I'm not too bad. Watching the new series of uh, Narcos, so see how that goes. So it's so, so good. So so far, so good. Uh, yeah, Colombia drew against Venezuela because Colombia always draw against Venezuela. But we'll talk about it in a minute. And we have our Uruguayan expert, Jesse Loesch. Jesse Another nil-nil for Uruguay, as we'll get to in a little bit. But the feeling is probably a bit different for you than maybe it was for Simon in his case. Yeah, I. Um, this feels a bit like like short-lived relief going into the next match. So I'll take it. Never a bad thing to get that short bit of relief. And finally, closing out our star-studded panel, we have our Ecuadorian expert, Javi Zavala. Javi, a rough night for the Ecuadorians in what has been a rough campaign. But I hope that you're doing well. Well, I'm doing great, personally. Good. That's but, what we like um, to hear. <laughs> yeah, but like Ecuador gives me mixed feelings at the moment, but we'll go deeper, further as we continue. Well, let's get straight into it, guys. We will start uh, in San Cristobal, Venezuela yesterday, where Colombia played out a nil-nil draw against the Venezuelan national team due in large part uh, to the success of the young Wilker Farinez in goal for Venezuela. A couple of decent chances for Colombia. They were unable to find the back of the net. This point and the other results that we'll get to in a minute leaves Colombia still in second place in the Conmebol table on 25 points, but just two points clear of fifth place Argentina and just four points clear of sixth place Peru. Simon, it felt like a disappointing effort for the Colombians, even if the point, when considered with other results isn't the worst case scenario for how this match day could have gone. You still would have liked to see a bit more from the Colombians in this effort. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I was quite disappointed with the, with the squad selection as well. As I mentioned before the pod, there were nine defenders for two games. Like, why do you need nine defenders? Are you planning on changing all of them for the second game and then having an extra one to bring on? So it was a very strange selection. Um, Farid Diaz still made the squad despite being terrible for about six months and then moving to Paraguay. So it seems like he's unable to get himself dropped from the squad, uh, which is interesting. Um, there were all kinds of strange inclusions. Boca Negra's back. And again, Nacional fans love Boca Negra, a very passionate player, but he's not that good. I mean, he scored some spectacular goals, but he's very limited. I wasn't overly impressed um, with the squad. Uh, Vargas is still in there as well. Just all kinds of strange selections. And then the 11 that he picked as well, Again, I'm not convinced playing two defensive ball-winning midfielders in Barrios and Sanchez. I mean, neither of them are particularly good on the ball. Carlos Sanchez at times can make some surprisingly good passes. Uh, and before the game, Carl, who's another expert we've had on a couple of times from Colombia, was saying, you know, I hope we get the, not the Aston Villa Sanchez. And kind of did a little bit. There was Venezuela pressed a lot. There was a lot of high-intense 
uh, work in the midfield from Venezuela. And Colombia didn't have the ball-playing midfielders to kind of work work through the press or bypass the, the press in midfield. What they were going for is two pacey wingers in Jimmy Chara and uh, Cuadrado, uh, with Edwin Cardona having the full responsibility in terms of creation in midfield. And he played really, really badly. So there was nobody in the Colombian midfield who could withstand the pressure from Venezuela. Jimmy Chara's had a good start. He's actually the most expensive signing in the history of Colombian football now coming into the league. He came back from Mexico to join uh, Teofilo Gutierrez at junior. He did okay, but again, it's it's very one-dimensional. It's two wingers who run as fast as they can, two fullbacks in uh, Frank Fabra and Cristian Arias, uh, Santiago Arias will try and overlap. And the best chances Colombia had came from those overlaps. Uh, there were two in very short succession that produced uh, a good save and, a, and just just wide as well. Actually, it's two good saves in the end from from Farinas, who will mention had an excellent game. But uh, also Oscar Morillo started in defence, wasn't particularly convincing, looks a little bit clumsy, especially when there's Davinson Sanchez on the bench. And again, Sanchez didn't particularly impress in his first two games for Colombia, but he definitely has uh, more, you know, a better level than uh, Oscar Morillo. So overall for Colombia, it was flat. Colombia always have terrible results away against Venezuela. They haven't won in six or seven, five, six or seven years, I think it is now. But I just think playing two defensive ball-winning midfielders who aren't particularly uh, good at passing against a team with a lot of enthusiasm, you know, some hard work and some some quality in the Venezuela midfield. It felt like Colombia just gave up the midfield with the hope that they'll get something out wide, get it in the box for Falcao. So it was just very flat. I was happy to see uh, Giovanni Moreno come off the bench. He improved things, almost scored a goal as well. But just overall, it was a Colombian side that had been picked, severely lacking in technical uh, ability. And that really shouldn't be the case when there's so much depth in the Colombian uh, the Colombian squad and in the players. This is now 44, 45 players that the coach has picked in two years. And it still seems that we have no idea what Colombia's best 11 is. He very much seems to be picking the team uh, based upon the opposition. And when you're playing against Venezuela, albeit a, a rejuvenated Venezuela, you should want to assert yourself on them, not try to respond to what they have. And that's very much what it felt like... Uh, uh, Peckman did for this game so very disappointing very flat could have scored could have nicked it but they didn't really deserve anything the way that Colombia played in this game Simon no James Rodriguez for Colombia in this game uh, up next for Colombia is a home test against uh, Brazil who have already walked away as as Conmebol World Cup qualifying champions regardless of what happens in their final three matches what is the status, you think, of Hamas for that match against Brazil? Will he come back to start? Could he feature off the bench? And it kind of feels like that this is more so than a, a bad result for Colombia. It really feels like a missed opportunity because with the other results that they had, it really seemed like Colombia could have gotten some space here, uh, some breathing room in second place and left them a bit more margin for error in these final three matches. Now the pressure is still probably going to be on right up to the end for this Colombian side. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and as I say, the, the team that was picked, there was no, you know, there was far too much respect given to Venezuela. And again, Venezuela do deserve respect. They do have some good players, but they are bottom of the table for a reason. You know, the, Colombia should have looked to assert themselves in this game rather than focusing on the counter, focusing on pace, focusing on Falcao in the box. There was kind of too much left up to chance with the with the way Colombia played in this game. They really needed one of those uh, counters down the wing payoff, but they didn't necessarily control possession as I think they potentially could have with a different selection. In terms of Hamas, 
well, Bayern aren't very happy. <laughs> they think he's not fit to play. But as you know, as we've seen as well with uh, Suarez, these South American qualifiers are so important for the players that it looks as though Hammer's loyalty to the to the to the national team uh, and Peckerman's strength in just saying no. He's he's as a Colombian international, he's required. Uh, you know, we we have authority to choose him, and Bayern Munich can't stop us. So he said in a press conference, you know, he's kind of keeping his cards close, cards close to his chest. But I think he was rested for this game with a view to be included uh, and feature against Brazil. Uh, I think he'll be very, very important. But yeah, so I think he'll definitely be involved. Uh, I think this is definitely the plan. I, I don't think anything has changed. I don't think he was in... You know, the plan was for him to feature against Venezuela necessarily. They brought Giovanni Moreno on instead of James when uh, Cardona was taken off. So uh, yeah, I would expect him to be play a more important role against Brazil. But it's such a shame because... This Venezuela game was the easier of the two, of of course. And we don't know what Brazil are going to come to Colombia uh, like, whether they want to come and win or not. But uh, yeah, very disappointing to again draw and again drop points away against Venezuela. It just always seems to happen. But I think it's something that Colombia can only blame themselves for in this. You'll have Sherimina back for the next one, no? Or will he still be suspended? No, he's actually injured. He's out for a few months. So Was he not, not gonna... suspended? No? Did I get that wrong? I thought he was suspended uh, for this one. No, he's been. He was injured for like three months, so he's still out for another month and a half, I think. Oh, so, I mean, that makes a yeah. big difference. There's a good chance he won't even feature in the October games as well. So, yeah, it's uh, Christian Zapata and then Davinson Sanchez or Oscar Morillo. Morillo started this game, kind of a safer option, because Sanchez is kind of disappointed for Colombia, but obviously he's played very well in Europe. So, we'll see if they stick with Morillo. Uh, it looks like the coach is going with the players he trusts and likes. Although there do seem to be quite a lot of them as we've had over 40 players selected. So we'll have to see what happens. Adam, for Venezuela, uh, quickly on them, uh, 2018 has, has been long out of their mind as far as the World Cup is concerned. We saw them have success at the Under-20 World Cup. We've seen the the project from Rafael Dudamel. Uh, a good result for Venezuela against a good Colombia side, particularly with the performance of Wilker Farinas in goal. He's a player that I've loved watching uh, for club Caracas and then at the Under-20 World Cup. And he really showed up on, on the national team stage here in this one. A good performance from the Venezuelans. Sounds like the police are coming to get you there, Austin. Was, was that they the are not, but they are driving by the house. All right, okay. Um, just making sure that this pod's going to reach its end. Yeah, so I think playing Venezuela at the moment is actually quite a tricky proposition. Even though they prop up the qualifying table, I think that great performance in the Under-20 World Cup and, and some of the players which are coming into this side from there has given them sort of a new lease of life. I think we saw that kind of unfold in this game. The changes to the Venezuela backline certainly helped them in in this one. Not that the under-20 players were involved, but there was changes anyway, and those changes needed to happen in that backline. Although, even though one of them was false, there was plenty of worry in the Venezuela camp about missing their experienced central defenders, Rosales and, and Vizcarondo. But although both had their moments over the years... For me, they're both mostly experienced in failure, especially in this World Cup qualifying campaign. So I was actually pleased to see Dudamel make those changes to the back. And and I think I, I was right in thinking that because, you know, they kept a clean sheet. Although, like you mentioned there, Austin, I think it's thanks in large to their brilliant young goalkeeper, Farinas, who made a Buffon-esque uh, save 
from uh, from Falcao in the in in the first half, a bullet header from the informed from Falcao. It has to be said, and yeah, I, I was just really impressed with how he saved that. I, I put this on Twitter. Farina, just as the cross came over, he just stepped back to his line. I think most goalkeepers in that situation would simply sidestep. But if you actually look at the footage, he makes a conscious decision to step back to his line. And that just gives him that extra millisecond to make that save. And yeah, he, he, is, he is such a massive talent. And it's going to be really fascinating to see how he develops over these next few years. I thought that Dudamel made a couple of odd substitutions in this game. I know we had a laugh about this, Austin, that he brought on the, the free kick specialist, Romelu Odero, <laughs> uh, for Josef Martinez. And Martinez was playing quite well, I thought. He, he, hit, the, he hit the bar in the first half with a wicked shot. He was, he, his movement was giving the Colombian backline trouble, um, especially alongside Rondon, um, who's always a handful. But yeah, he was brought off. I don't know if he was carrying a knock because at that point I was kind of having half an eye on the build-up to the Chile game as well. So maybe I missed something there. Yeah, so Otero came on. It just seemed like they brought him on to take this free kick. And then he took what I think we can agree on is one of the worst free kick attempts we've ever seen. It was an absolutely horrendous effort. So that was that was very entertaining part of this game. Um, I think probably on balance, Neil Neil was probably a fair result, actually. I don't think neither side did quite enough to win the game. A quick mention as well to uh, to Cordova, Sergio Cordova. He, he, he got a move to the Bundesliga, mainly in part to those huge under-20 World Cup performances we saw uh, back in May. And I thought he had a good game here. And yeah, I, I, he, he seems to have gone strength to strength this year, really, from, from nowhere. So yeah, he he certainly wants a another one to keep an eye on. Obviously, you know we've got World Football Index favourite Yang Hel Herrera as well in this side, and um, and he he also gave another solid performance. There's plenty of promise in this Venezuela side, and I, and I think we sh we saw some signs of that here in this one. Yeah, encouraging signs from Venezuela, and I think you can really see a plan in place. And, and 2022 has kind of always been the goal for this squad. And with the performance of this side at the Under-20 World Cup, I think it's a very legitimate goal for them. Javi, for you, uh, as we close out the conversation on this match, nil-nil a fair result for Colombia and Venezuela? The tie was a fair result, but I think the, the win could have gone either way, right? Like both of them had very clear chances and Ospina saved a few. Farines is a monster. I think it's unforgivable that some teams in Europe are clinging to their old goalkeepers or have goalkeepers that are not at the same level as the rest of the players. When you have such a deep well of talent here in South America and Farines is only 19, 20? 19, if I'm not mistaken. 19. So 19, he's he's fantastic. Not only his his ability to be a shot stopper, but his reflexes, his reading of the rivals and the opposite forwards of what they're going to do, where they're going to shoot and so on. He's fantastic and like, he can only improve, right? So I'm really, really eager to see him develop and see where he ends up. He's going to make a lot of people happy as he grows up. Yangel Herrera, like Adam mentioned, he was fantastic controlling the midfield, which is in part why, like Simon said, that Colombia depended, depended a lot on the wings and in pace up front, that's because Jan Herrera was a key part of controlling that midfield. 
that Dudamel definitely deserves praise for how how he's mixing up the talent that he already had in his at his disposal with this new generation, right? So, for example, he included John Chancellor, which is not a young face, but it's a new face, right? Um, he's a center back of center back of Delfin de Manta, which is the best team in the Guardian tournament right now. So Dudamel is making a great job at mixing. These new faces with um with informed with the players, time that he really no? had. with informed players. Exactly, uh, I think I think that's that's been the key, and I think that's again Dudamel's uh, management coming to the fore. Definitely, Adam, I agree with you. Uh, Dudamel deserves a lot of praise here. It was a it was a it was a good match to see from Venezuela, and again, as we said, not the end of the world for Colombia, but certainly it feels more than anything else like like a missed opportunity for the Colombians who will be back in action when they host Brazil on Tuesday. Next up, we'll move to Santiago, Chile. Uh, the scoreline tells at least a bit of the story. Chile, nil. Padua, three. Adam, I won't uh, belabor the point anymore. I'll let you get straight into it. Not the result, obviously, not the performance that, that Chile were looking for on the night. Adam, do you need a cup of tea? Do you <laughs> want Simon to sing to you? Are you cuddling something soft? I, I wondered. I, right I, I, I wondered how long it would be before you interrupted me. I haven't even started that. speaking. <laughs> I, I need record. to know that the setup is is that you feel safe and comfortable. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. I'm fine. I've had. 20, okay. I'll, be fine. I've I'll had, mute my button right I've now. I've had 24 hours to to process it. Uh, I think I'm just about there now. Thank you, Jis, as ever. You're welcome. I'm I'm going back on mute. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So where to start, really? Well, let's let's take it back to the Confederations Cup. So what we saw there is up and down performances during the group stage. I thought before one of their classic, brilliant performances in the semi-final against Portugal, which Chile ended up deserving to win on penalties, and before sort of unluckily losing in the final to Germany. You know, in those two games against Portugal and Germany, it did look like Chile were a very good bet to qualify for Russia next year. I've had their ups and downs under Pizzi. Seems like one week they play well, the next week not not so well. We've we've kind of seen that throughout this World Cup qualifying campaign from many teams, not just Chile. Really, inconsistency seems to be a big problem. When this Chile squad got together for these matches, just from the off, really things didn't seem to be quite right. Some of the noises coming from the camp. So in the early hours of Monday morning, it was it was reported that. Vidal was out until the early hours of the morning. Um, a couple of days before this game, he reacted angrily in a press conference and denied it. But there was already tension building. You could see it written all over their faces, the players. Um, tension between them and the media and also some fans kind of criticising you know, the, the lack of discipline in the squad again. There was a slight kind of bad feeling heading into this game, which is surprising given they were seen as heroes really for their confederation cup display and also you know austin you text me hours before the game yesterday about alexis sanchez's uh possible move to manchester city and whether that would affect him or not and i said i can't see it you know he's too experienced for that but I've, you know the, the more i've looked at it I've, you know i've watched some of the game back today specifically to watch sanchez's kind of body language and stuff before, certainly before the game and, and during the game. And I, and I think you might have been on to something there, to be honest. I, he didn't seem himself all night and his eyes didn't look like they, you know, he, he wanted to be there. 
when you looked in, it, it, it was it was strange. It was very strange, and it, and it kind of his poor performance, Vidal's poor performance. You do wonder if it's anything to do with the issues both of those two have had in, in the past few days. There's also rumours that Sanchez asked for a day off from PC as well. PC said no, or or he did give it to him, but begrudgingly. I'm not, I'm not quite sure how that situation resolved itself in the end. There was just a lot of tension going into the game. And, and, and within the first minute of the match, I think Chile misplaced the ball, misplaced their passes like three times. And you're thinking already, well, this doesn't look good. It's nervous. And then after five minutes, it's still going on. And 15 minutes into the match, they still haven't sorted themselves out. The night from start to finish, really, was a was a disaster. And that Vidal own goal just, you know, <laughs> set the ball rolling for Paraguay. They ended up winning 3-0 without playing particularly well, in my opinion. They did have... They, without playing particularly well on the ball, I would say, but obviously they defended very well and they were very organised. They put in a very impressive kind of deep block on, on Chile. And, and if you're going to beat Chile then that is seemingly the way to do it. You know, we saw Germany do that in the Confederations Cup final and we've seen other teams do it as well over over the past year or two. But, you know, Chile knew that that was coming. You know, Paraguay weren't going to come to Chile and play any other way. It just seems like the lack of focus was was really, really worrying for me in this game. And, and the word that I've used quite a lot since last night it's, it's kind of incredible and unfathomable really the performance levels of so many players Arangis was another one usually very dependable for Chile but and it, and he didn't hide in fairness to him last night but it, he, he did have a shocker he, he seemed to give it away every time he, he got it but the one player I, I could potentially pick out for some praise here is Eduardo Vargas he did try and make some things happen in the first half. Perhaps that shows he's maturing a little bit in his newfound role at Tigres in Mexico. Um, yeah, he 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 was one of the few players in this Chile side who came into the Chile squad in great form. Sanchez and Vidal haven't had much football, so maybe that was that was partly down to their um, poor performances as well. Um, I do wonder whether Pizzi should have changed. His tactics from, you know, the tactics which worked quite well in the Confederations Cup, you know, playing with an extra man in midfield in the shape of uh, Pablo Hernandez. Instead, he opted to play Nico Castillo, who's, to be fair, you know, he has looked absolutely amazing in, in Liga MX. But putting him in in this situation was a, was still going to always be a big ask for him. And, and it was a doubt heading into the game. In, in my head, whether the occasion may prove too much for him. He did miss a golden chance a couple of World Cup qualifiers ago against Argentina when he came on. Again, he struggled to get himself into the game. He, he did um, lack service, to be fair to him. And Chile tried to change that in the second half by bringing uh, Valdivia on. But Valdivia came on for Castillo, so that, that, was, that was kind of a odd substitution. Perales also came on for Diaz uh, around the same time. But it didn't. It, it just never looked like it was happening for Chile last night. I would put that down to a lack of focus more than anything else. I hope that on Tuesday against Bolivia in this huge World Cup qualifying coming up now, 
Um, I know you're going to laugh at this, Austin. You know, Chile have won comfortably there 2-0 on their last three visits uh, to La Paz. And until last night, really, it, it was a game that I didn't really worry too much about. But after last night's performance, it's very difficult for me to sit here and say, I think Chile were going to win that. Because the performance levels were so, so far off what they should be. I think in three, four days, it's going to be very difficult to get those performance levels up. But let's see, like, like I said earlier, Chile have been very up and down under PT. Sometimes it suddenly clicks and they look great. And other times you get matches like Paraguay losing 3-0 at home to Paraguay. It's a, it's a strange one. Austin, I, I know that you, you saw some of the game. What, what did you make of it? I think you're spot on in saying that Paraguay won 3-0 without playing particularly well. That said, I think you have to give them credit in that they were consistently in the right positions to take advantage of the Chileans' mistakes. But you look at the first two goals, the first being just a really bizarre own goal, it must be said, from Arturo Vidal, looking like he was uh, trying to score on his own net, just with the power and finesse that he headed it into the top corner. When there was really no danger coming from that free kick, I think, obviously, that kind of set the night on the path that it eventually went on. The second goal for Padawai, they weren't in particularly a dangerous position. Uh, and then the ball just kind of fell to to Victor Casadas. And, and he, to his credit, finished well. But he never really should have been in that situation. And then the third goal just came as a result of sitting back and then hitting out on a, a very well-taken counterattack. And all of a sudden, it was 3-0 for Padawai. And, and really, there had only been three or four actual chances for them. Uh, a massive, massive result. A question for you, Adam. We saw Chile struggle with it. You know, as you said, we've seen them struggle with teams that sit back and defend. Germany in the Confederations Cup. Padua in this match. Going to Bolivia, that's probably going to be the game plan of the Bolivians. They're going to make Chile attempt to break them down. Would you... Do you see a shift in tactics from Pizzi? Could we see uh, Jorge Valdivia for, if not a start, maybe a longer stretch? Because he seems to be that one Chile player that is good at working in small spaces. Or do you think Pizzi will continue along with the same tactics? And could that be a concern for the Chileans against Bolivia on Tuesday? Well, this is one of the things I'm fascinated to see about Tuesday. Because Bolivia generally, when they play at home in La Paz, don't sit back, do they? They they tend to they tend to go for it a little bit um, because they try and strangle the opposition in the, in the, in that altitude straight from kickoff. Really, they go for the throat and and try and wear the opposition down very very quickly. It'd be interesting to see what Bolivia's tactics are going into this game. Yeah, you're c- completely right. If Bolivia want to get something from this, I think their best plan of action is probably to put ten men, ten men behind the ball and and take their chances with. With set pieces or or a mistake in the Chile backline, that that seems to be the way to beat Pizzi's Chile. I'm not sure they will do that. I th- I think with the home crowd there, I think they're going to be more up for sort of going at Chile a little bit, and that could play into Chile's hands. So you know, with a little bit more space to suddenly play in, we might see the old Chile come back. Yeah, this this Valdivia thing, it's it's difficult to say because. Of this generation, Chile, in my opinion, Chile's best performances have come without Valdivia in the side. So I, th- I think sometimes his importance can be can be overplayed a little bit. As, mu- as much as I like him as a player, I'm not sure he's the right player 
for the altitude of La Paz as well. To be honest, Austin, I'm not sure. I I think I'd prefer a more solid midfield base for Bolivia away. I'd probably bring Pablo Hernandez back in the side. The other thing I should mention at this stage, of course, is that Chile are going to be without Gonzalo Jara, which is probably a bonus because he's been in terrible form the last couple of weeks especially. And, um, And the fact that he very rarely keeps his head in difficult situations is is also a big worry. And also, they're going to be without um, Charles Arangis as well, which which is a blow because he was probably Chile's best player in the past four years ago, so four or five years ago when, when they last played a qualifier there. So, so that's a little bit of a blow. But the way Pizzi needs to go is, is to pack the midfield a little bit and try and keep the ball and make Bolivia do the work. Javier, quickly for you, from the Potawayan point of view, which we haven't focused on a ton because, as Adam said, they didn't do all that much. This is an absolutely vital result for them. They're right back in the thick of the World Cup chase. They're just two points off of fifth place, albeit with Peru still in front of them in the table. For Potawai, they host Uruguay coming forward. That's a big opportunity for them. Just a great result for Potawai, even if they didn't have to do all that much to get it. it. It's exactly what they were looking for on the night, and the World Cup hopes got a big, big boost. Uh, I'm kind of angry at Paraguay right now. They made me look very bad because, like, I looked at the lineup that Chile was presenting. And I said, "Ooh, Chile is going to destroy Paraguay," and boy, I was wrong. I was so wrong. But yeah, Paraguay right now, it's overtaking Ecuador, it's moving forward. And that game against Uruguay for them, it's going to be extremely important to keep climbing. Uh, it's going to be a very intense game. Paraguay and Uruguay doesn't like each other very, very much. And they tend to play very physical game at each other. So um, like, like you mentioned, this game versus Chile was just extremely unfortunate for Chile, right? Because you end up losing a game in which the situation and luck was never on your side. You just started losing with an own goal that's a very bizarre, unusual own goal, right? And then a deflection leaves like a, uh, like a Paraguayan player like Cáceres straight in front of goal. So luck never gave you a chance. So Paraguay would be wise to just make the right adjustments and try to take to still present the best game versus Uruguay because you might not be as lucky versus Uruguay and you might need to actually get the game by yourself, right? So the, these Commonwealth qualifiers are insane. Uh, so intense. So tight in the table. Simon, anything you want to add on this match? No, you know, I just think Paraguay might have been with the chance though, you know. I think with they've got Venezuela, Uruguay and Colombia. I think they've got a good chance against Uruguay. They'll expect to win against Venezuela, although Venezuela are more tricky than they once were. Uh, and then the Colombia game is important. So while they're outside uh, at the moment, I mean, they do have a minus five goal difference, which could be an important factor as well. Uh, you know, I still think they're in with a decent chance. And in terms of La Paz, often Bolivia games in La Paz end up being very end-to-end, wide open. Everything kind of goes out the window. We've seen that a few times. So if that's the case, it's kind of, up in the air as to, to what can happen. Um, obviously, that's partly tactics, that's partly conditions. But often, I've a lot of the games I've seen in La Paz for Bolivia do end up being just wide open and whoever scores their chances tends to win. So that might be a, a challenge for Chile in terms of controlling the game. 
We'll move on now to the nil-nil draw between Uruguay and Argentina. And Jesse, I will obviously come to you first on this one. It's a point for Uruguay on a night when they didn't have a lot of possession, on a night when Luis Suarez played but was clearly not 100%. Uh, All things considered, a good result for the Uruguayans that gets them one step closer to Russia and maybe one step further away from yet another intercontinental playoff. Yeah, I think um, this, although I don't think anyone would say it was a good performance, you know, we always want to win at home. It was definitely a relief to have the draw, especially because Suarez was at best, you know, 80%. I'm not a math person, but played more, I think, as a as a figurehead, as a leader than than as a as his usual um playmaker goal scorer self. And I think we were also missing Hernandez and especially the Arqueta, who would have been that that link up playmaker for Cavani and for Suarez. And there was definite um you know, you sense that. You sense that that nobody was really doing that. And I think that what we didn't do and what we've what what has really been a problem in the past is that we gave Argentina way too much respect and we let them set the tone early on. And and I think that's been a problem since Lugano left. Nobody has really, you know, Godin I, I think is incredible and I and I like him so much, but I don't think he has the same sort of ability to to captain this team verbally that Lugano had. So that's missing. Um but Having said that, I think that, you know, this was a great chance for Hernandez to find his feet and, and get some rhythm in with, with the team. I, he, I love him. I, I, I think he was so phenomenal with the U20s. I think he's so strong with Peñarol. He's going to be so important going forward. I would love to see Tavares bring in Gaston Pareto onto the pitch, you know, but he's Tavares and he's going to stick with what he knows. And what he knows was not a shambles yesterday. You know, nobody lost their head aside from what I think Adam is going to bring up in a second. So Adam, I'll do it for you. I think that yes, was a terrible tackle from Suarez and Otamendi really, really terrible. And <laughs> you read and my mind. I know. I know. I know. I, I, yesterday was my, my cousin's birthday and, and he was at the stadium and I, I took out my phone and WhatsApped him like, Oh my God, he's going to get suspended. This is the worst thing that ever happened. Um, so uh, I don't know what's going to happen there. Hopefully that doesn't happen. Uh, you know, Di Maria could have had three goals when Biglia, whatever version, what I was watching, be in sports or whoever was showing the game, they had this this angle that that showed Biglia's shot like almost going in. The words that came out of my mouth were unfit for public ears. But other than that, I really don't, and you guys can disagree with me, I don't think anybody on either team had a spectacular game. I don't think anybody really played super well or had any terrific chances but at the same time I don't think anybody did anything ridiculous which we've seen a lot in these matches you know there was not a scuffle um, aside from Mercado losing his head this was sort of like a boring match and I'm totally okay with that you know I think we needed to get our feet back under us and and we needed the centenario for that to happen and I think that Messi and Suarez going out there with the 2030 jerseys was like a nice way to sort of establish that this is where football needs to be right now for for Uruguay that we need to remember you know that that this is what we have and this is where 
you know, we cannot play that playoff again. Um, and, and with the, the distance between Colombia and Ecuador so tight, you know, there are no easy matches anymore. You know, going to Venezuela is not a guaranteed anything. It's not a guaranteed point even, you know, nobody has the luxury of, of saying that playing at home is a, is a win. So I'm not going to be happy. You know, I'll, I'll be relieved that we, that we tied until tomorrow when I'm going to be terrified that we're going to have to go to Paraguay. Jesse, certainly nothing is given in Conmobile, but of all of the teams in that, you know, cluster between second and eighth that's separated by five points, I think you probably have to like Uruguay's remaining fixtures the best. Away to Paraguay, again, that is dangerous. That's a Paraguay team that is is surging up the table. And but, I think they have the momentum, though, Austin. What did you yeah, say from yesterday? Like, this is definitely. they are going to know that that it's on their home field advantage, and they're the ones coming in with that incredible win. Sorry, yeah. Adam. <laughs> but then you look at the final two fixtures for Uruguay. Away to Venezuela, again, tricky, but not as bad as it could be. And then home to Bolivia. If there is a given in Convo, it is home to Bolivia. All <laughs> considered, are you feeling pretty good about World Cup qualification? I'm Uruguay. Especially? We don't feel pretty good about anything. No. <laughs> I will say personally that I feel pretty good about Uruguay. Maybe as good as I do about anybody in South America right now. You just Adam, used me. <laughs> I apologize in advance. No, actually, um, Austin, I've, I've just suddenly yeah. thought of something we somehow haven't. We've got halfway through the pod and we haven't mentioned yet. And that, of course, is the cast decision which happened this week which meant that Chile and Peru kept those extra points they were given yes. for the Nelson Cabrera case. So um, that happened at the same time that Messi was able to play these three games that he was supposed to be suspended for. So yeah. who is paying off who? <laughs> and, and, What's going on? And uh, Yeah, well, it's difficult to say, isn't it? Because the Messi thing, that's a bonus for Argentina where the Cabrera case was something which went against them. So, well, you know, you can't really it's say like, it's the ghost of, you can't say it's the no. ghost of Grondona. Um, I think, well, think about all though the Argentinian coaches. Somebody's doing something weird. <laughs> Adam, we saw Luis Suarez play here for Uruguay, and it, it brings up this point that we see so often in Conable qualifiers. Uh, we see it with James, who will probably try to return for Colombia against Brazil. Uh, these players not at 100%, but just how valuable uh, suiting up for their national team is how valuable it is for them to represent their country and play. And once again, in this case, we saw it with Luis Suarez, and it's something that we'll probably continue to see with players continually because it just is so, so important to these South American players to come back to their countries and continue to play for their national teams, even if they don't feel that they're completely 100% fit. Nice try, Austin, to try and get me to praise Luis Suarez on a World Football Index pod. He, he, gets, oh. he, gets, he gets enough praise <laughs> on this network. I'm, I'm not going to sit here and add, and add to that. Um, I didn't say anything when you said the two words, Gonzalo and Jara. I kept my mouth shut. <laughs> I thought it was nice to see. Simon, I'll come to you. Nil-nil, Argentina, Uruguay. Uh, or Uruguay, Argentina, however you want to put it, uh, not the greatest display of football you'll ever see from Carnival. And it's such a shame with so much talent on the pitch between these two sides uh, that the footballing product that we got was was so unfathomably poor at points. Yeah, I mean, I thought there were some interesting aspects to the game. I mean, for me, one of the clear difference was the the Uruguayan confidence in defense as opposed to the Argentine confidence. Uh, you know, I'm, I think there were some shaky performances from some not, 
massively impressive defenders for Argentina. And obviously that's nothing new. But I think with this new system, there's going to be a lot of work needed if they're going to be better than the sum of their parts. Because I'm not particularly impressed by the parts. And so far, the sum doesn't look convincing either. Um, so I think that's a concern for Argentina, especially on the wings. You know, there were some nervy moments. Uh, with Uruguay, again, this game, they had two men up front and they just kicked it forward to them and, and see to see what they can do. And if you're going to do that, I mean, Cavani and Suarez are not a bad two. But I think it was quite obvious that Suarez couldn't overcome, you know, and often, often in games, he's the kind of the difference in that regard. But in this game, I think some of the injuries, one of the uh, examples of that was where the ball broke to him just after the halfway line and he had a shot. It wasn't a bad effort, it wasn't too far off target, but I think it was definitely clear that he didn't feel that he had the, you know, the injuries and the injury concerns probably were holding him back because usually with Suarez in that kind of position, he would drive forward, would link with Cavani. I think Cavani did a lot of the running up front for that pair um, in this game. So I think Uruguay, again, very impressive in defence. Uh, Jimenez and uh, Godin is just, just great to watch from a defensive perspective. I'm sure Javi was enjoying that one as well. Big defensive fan. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think, you know, overall the game was kind of interesting. Um, I, I don't think Argentina uh, necessarily did enough to, to get the win. Impressive defensive work from Uruguay. But also I think against a team kind of with more whip than, than Uruguay, Uruguay played quite narrowly and quite directly. Uh, Argentina's uh, defensive three uh, might struggle. And that'll be interesting to see because they don't look particularly confident or assured at times. Um, and there was moments of panic uh, in, at the back for Argentina, despite having the vast majority of the game. I think that will change, though, again, because of the players that Tavares had to deal with and the lack of depth because of injury. The, our lineup will change. I wonder how that will, how Sampaoli will deal going forward, if, if he will change either his lineup or his or his positioning. Um, I think that that's where Sampaoli, Paoli's success was in that game, but I think that actually it was a good start for San Paoli because I, I feel and I think that he read the, the game very well because by setting that lineup and that formation, he already knew that when you face Uruguay and when you're Argentina, you don't have to deal with that with because Uruguay doesn't show you or doesn't present or doesn't attack on the wings that much. So that means that you can play three on the back like he did and then have those wing backs actually turn into wingers, right? So once you move your wing backs to being wingers, you can allow your original wingers, which were Messi and Dybala, to actually move and play centrally, which they cannot do. Like Dybala plays central attacking midfielder for Juventus right now. And Messi, well, when you're Messi, you play everywhere, right? So you play a narrow defense with three in the back and two defensive midfielders when you have to where you protect what you have to protect, which are the, the central runs of the of, of a vertical attack like Uruguay presents, right? And then you just try to create space up front. So I think that San Paoli read the game very well. It just the score didn't play well for him. And that's the first thing. And the second thing is that wasn't this game about crazy stats or or what? I, I'm still like impressed of reading the stats of this game. So first, 80% versus 20% possession in favor of Argentina. That's insane. 708 passes for Argentina, just 170 for Uruguay. That's crazy. And then you have crazy stats like, for example, Icardi had just four passes in the game, even though Argentina had 708, right? And then Corujo, 
uh, got into the game at minute 68 and never touched the ball, right? So <laughs> it, it was just it was just a game for crazy stats. I I enjoyed Sampaoli. I kind of enjoyed the game because you can actually enjoy those link-up plays between Dybala and Messi. You could enjoy the, the Garra Charrua, the Godin and Jimenez partnership, which I love, being a colchonero of my own. Like, I love that partnership. So I think it was a quite enjoyable game, even though apparently it wasn't that attractive for you of football lovers. <laughs> well, I so how you maybe will like this. I have a, a heat map. Is that what you call it? A heat map that shows you, I think it is. I'm going to yeah. go with heat map from, um, <laughs> <laughs> sure, I'm going to make that up. The Uruguay 2010 World Cup. And from before that, the... Um, uh, I don't even know what it's for, but it's but it's all these old heat maps that show that even when we win, and it's, even when we win from a lot, we have like, I don't know, four times fewer passes. And it used to make me super anxious. Like the first time I learned how to read these things, it was like, oh my God, we're just, we suck. We're the worst. But that's just how we play. Like that's, it, looking at this map, you think that like we never touch the ball and it's just like whatever the opposite of tiki-taka is, that's Uruguayan football. Like we just, we never have enough passes and somehow that's the style that we've that we've come up with through the years of like gritty fighting and going against Paraguay. It's, I think it's the closest in South America, the football between, you know, the two of us. And, and that's somehow why it gets, you know, down and dirty. But that's what we got. All I was going to say is that I completely agree with you, Jesse, and that's the style. And even. Even though you had that different passes, like you have 10 shots versus eight shots. You have 15 fouls versus 14 fouls. So passes and possession is one thing, but actually having the chance to win is a different thing. So I completely agree with you, right? Like that, those kind of stats don't really show anything unless you give them context, which is the most important part when you analyze stats is that you have to give them context, right? So uh, I completely agree with you. And I obviously enjoy vertical football. I enjoy counter-attacking style. I enjoy the last, the, like this whole Tavares area, e- era in Uruguay. I love it. So I completely agree with you, like 100%. That's the style. You, when you have a team and you aspire to great things, you need to have an identity and you need to have, you need to have your players totally dig into that identity and find their roles within that identity. And Uruguay and Tavares has been able to, that's why Uruguay has been so successful. Uh, in this Tavares era, right? I hope so. <laughs> we'll move on from that into the fourth match of the night, which was a 2-0 win for Brazil against Ecuador in Porto Alegre. Uh, from a Brazilian point of view, uh, I think it was just about as expected. Uh, Ecuador sat back and defended. It took Brazil maybe a bit longer than expected to break them down. Uh, probably the biggest moment of the match was the substitution of, of Felipe Coutinho in for Brazil, replacing Renato Augusto, giving the Brazilians a bit more of an offensive look. Um, that kind of proved to be the final straw for Ecuador. Brazil uh, scored after that with Paulinho providing the opener uh, and then Coutinho himself getting the second. Uh, a 2-0 win for Brazil. Not a ton of takeaways for the Brazilian team, I think. Uh, Cheech saw just about what he wanted to see. Uh, Luan, the Gremio man, got on for the first time in a competitive fixture. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see how Brazil approaches their match against Colombia, uh, what players Cheech chooses to start, if he chooses to maybe make rotations in his squad now that Brazil have 
not only clinched a World Cup berth, but also clinched the best point total uh, in South in Commonwealth World Cup qualifiers, whatever happens. So I think an opportunity here for Cheech to to make some rotations and start figuring out what he's going to do with spots 16 to 23 on his squad list um, with the first kind of starting 11 and, and first few substitutes already settled. The biggest storyline, obviously, from this match is uh, the performance of Ecuador. And for that, I'll come to you, Javi. Another loss. For Ecuador, um, qualification seems to be slipping away from them after what was, in fairness, a very good start for Quinteros' side. Uh, they came in with a game plan to the Arena del Gremio, but weren't really able to see that out all the way through the end. And then once Ecuador went 1-0 down, especially for me, it kind of felt like they didn't really know how to respond or what to do. Quickly found themselves 2-0 down, and that was curtains for them. And it might be curtains on their World Cup hopes unless they can turn it around quickly. So it's kind of a mixed feelings for me because you like you can I can still feel that we can take away something positive out of this game. So which is something I haven't felt in eight to ten match days. Again, like it was the best Ecuador performance in a very long time, right? And there were some positive things, like for example, Quinteros finally started to consider rhythm and form of players to be chosen. That's why you see, you saw Maximo Vanguera, which was by far in goal, with his, his shot-stopping skills and his fantastic ability to waste time. He would have made Jose Francisco Ceballos very, very proud. Then you saw Pedro Pablo Velasco, who plays right back for uh, for Barcelona. You saw Robert Arboleda, who's playing in Brazil. You saw Fernando Gaibor, who he's, I'm not a real fan of him, but he has been playing really well for, for Emelec, right? And actually, had a he had a very poor game versus Brazil. So there's a few positive things to take away. And, of course, there were some negative stuff. So, like, I think that you feel like... I feel like you have to give credit to Tite. By the way, that's how we pronounce it in Spanish. I don't know how to say Chich or whatever you say, Austin. I admire that skill. I cannot do that. So I'm going to refer to him as Tite. So Tite was very smart because Ecuador was being able to hold their position and their defense and their clean sheet very long. And for example, he started to make adjustments to make that harder, right? So he moved William wider. In that way, he was, uh, he couldn't, so he was forcing Ecuador to move one of their three defensive midfielders towards the left, giving more room in the, in the middle, which you really cannot do versus Brazil. Therefore, you force Fidel Martinez to play almost as a midfielder to defend and help uh, and help in the back. So he took away one of our attackers by just doing something so simple like that. Or also, what really changed the game is was in the second half, he, Tite decided to move Neymar towards the middle. And once Neymar started playing in the middle, that's where Brazil started getting more serious and more serious and closer to goal, right? And that's when they scored the goal, right? Which it kind of hurts because you saved, Banguera saved so many dangerous, intense like options of goals for Brazil. And then you got scored in such a clumsy, rookie, just underwhelming way. It hurts. And then Coutinho's substitution also made the game harder because well, we were already losing. So there was a lot of room in the middle. So for him to like roam and create chaos. So yeah, like at the end, you're facing the best team in South America. You, we, you had a great performance, but that team is just better. Like Ecuador had a very good performance, but Brazil, Brazil is simply a machine. They're simply fantastic. So I'm just happy that it's something positive to take away. You still have three games remaining. 
your options to qualify are there. You need to get seven points out of nine possible. It's hard, but hey, this is comable. Nothing comes easy in comable. If you want it, if you really, really want it, go there and prove it. Simply as that. Ecuador might end up being the first team in comable history to win the first four qualifying games and then not qualify to the World Cup. That will be embarrassing and very disappointing. But again, this is comable. It's not about the serving. It's about actually getting it. So go there and prove you want it. You have to beat Chile. You have to beat Peru. You have to get points against Argentina. Go get them. If not, you can watch the World Cup from your home. That simple. Couldn't have put it better myself. Uh, Ecuador-Peru will be the match on Tuesday. Uh, that's a nice segue into a 2-1 win for Peru against Bolivia to close out this match day. Uh, the Peruvians went up 2-0 uh, thanks to goals from Flores and Cueva after a, a shaky start in the first half. Uh, Bolivia got one back on a very, very lovely chip from Alvarez. And then in the dying moments of this match, Bolivia almost stole a point. Uh, Justiano was inside the six with a chance to finish, but he put it straight over the crossbar. And what would have surely been a heartbreaking goal for the Peruvians and probably the end of their World Cup hopes. But instead, it's a 2-1 win for Peru. They're on 21 points, two back of fifth place Argentina and a head-on goal differential against Paraguay with a shot to go away to Ecuador and get a result and put them right back in the World Cup conversation. Simon, it really can't be overstated how important this result was for Peru. You have to take advantage of your opportunities at home against Bolivia. It wasn't necessarily as easy as it could have been, but they got the three points. And even with a hard finish to the fixtures for them, if Peru somehow managed to get results in their final few matches, they could find themselves in Russia, maybe against all odds. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we've seen Peru play some some decent football. You know, they've got some good players. Cueva is a player I really like. Very skillful, technical, attacking midfielder. Uh, it has got some interesting hair going on, but he's always a good player to watch. Uh, yeah, no, I think they're still in with a shout, Peru. Um, they're right in the mix. Obviously, a couple of points behind, but everyone plays everyone in the World, South American World Cup qualifiers. So most games are a six-pointer, if you, you know think of league, league football. That almost every game is taking points off a direct opponent. So I think, yeah, I think they've got a good chance. It's going to be very tight. Uh, they're right in the mix. They need to get some results. They've got Colombia, they've got Ecuador, and they have got Argentina. So they're playing teams around them, <laughs> which again is most teams. They haven't got any other teams kind of out of the out of the contention now to go. So every win they get brings them closer, you know, brings them above a, a direct rival. Uh, which is the case for most of the teams now in the mix there. So, you know, a, an important win. They would have been very disappointed to have not got the, the win against Bolivia, but you have to do it. Bolivia, I've got my favourite centre-back in uh, Eduardo uh, Eduard Zenteno at the back. It makes me feel like I can be an international player because he's he's a little bit chubby and he's a little bit old-looking, but he's very tenacious. He's a, an impressive defender in there. So, yeah, happy, happy that Peru got the win. Keeps things very interesting. I mean, not necessarily happy from a Colombian perspective. But it keeps everyone tight, and I think the next the next couple of games are going to be very, very key uh, to see how we do. But yeah, so important win for Peru. Peru are a side with real momentum at the moment. I think you know they're unbeaten in their last three, two wins in a row now. But they do head to Ecuador, knowing that they probably have to win that because if they don't win that, then they're probably going to have to win in Argentina to get to Russia, and and that's without mentioning the fact they're probably going to have to beat. Colombia at home as well. 
Peru, if they get six points from their final three games, I think that might just be enough for for a playoff place. Yeah, that's definitely one to watch. But they, they do face Ecuador knowing that they are a side that can win away because for about 20 years in Commonwealth World Cup qualifying, Peru didn't win an away match until they beat Paraguay 4-1 a few months ago. And, and that also adds to another very strange fact from this qualifying series. So we've seen Peru beat Paraguay twice. We've seen Chile beat Peru twice. And we've, but we've seen Paraguay beat Chile twice. So, yeah, everybody's beating each other. It kind of adds fuel to the argument that none of the sides kind of chasing down Brazil at the top are in particularly decent shape, it has to be said, in the big scheme of things. Maybe relatively so. Like Peru, for example, that this is probably the best they've looked for years. If you compare them to what they may face from from Europe, especially in Russia next year, if they did make it, you know, they probably still have a way to go. But yeah, I, I was I was impressed with Peru for the first hour of this match. But when they took a two-goal lead, they made a big mistake. I, I think they relaxed a little bit too much. Um, they took their foot off their gas, took the foot off the gas, and they allowed Bolivia back in it and. Bolivia got one back and they almost equalised with a, with pretty much the last kick, kick of the game. Uh, it was a it was a golden opportunity blasted over the bar from a few yards out. It has to be said that the goals from Flores and Cueva were absolute stonkers, no? Into the top corner. I know that you enjoyed that, Austin. They were. They were both very, very good. And, and what was kind of fun about it was Flores' goal was really good and then Cueva's goal four minutes later... Might have been even better. Simon, do you give Peru a chance to make the World Cup? It seems hard with the fixtures that they have in front of them, but with the congestion in the table, it doesn't feel like anyone can be ruled out. It certainly seems as though that match away to Ecuador might be curtains for whoever, if anyone loses that match, they're probably done. And a draw might mean that both of them are done. That might be the pick of the next round of matches. Yeah, I think the most important thing is for the competition for both of those teams that somebody wins <laughs> i think is the key um if if either of those teams win they're right back in contention they may also with that with that result there's a good chance they'll put them back into the top 5 and i think going into those having that month break and then going into the final two games either inside or very close to the to the qualification i think it really sets you know sets a different tone for the feeling around the squad, the feeling around the country. If you're more than three points outside, then I think it will it will be a different feeling going into those two games. But if you know that you just have to match the results of your direct rivals around you in those two final games, uh, I think it will really lift the team. So, uh, yeah, whatever happens, Ecuador and Peru, I think they need to try and win the, that game. Both of those sides need to go for the three points. And if they do, then I think they'll have a you know a psychological advantage coming into the final game, especially someone like Peru, who are kind of on the on the up. Again, Ecuador put in a good performance. If they get that important win, I think, again, it will give them a lift for the for the final two games and kind of change the feeling around the, the side. You know, they were very unlucky against Brazil. I was kind of rooting for them. It was a shame they kind of fell asleep on that corner, which kind of opened up the, you know, I could see the deflation in the, in the Ecuadorian side. And then the Brazilian side started doing tricks and stuff. And I was like, oh, that's just cruel. Come on. These guys work so hard and now you, you know, haven't taken the make. And also, I was a bit worried that Ecuador frustrations might result in a couple of late kicks on those Brazilian players. But maybe they would have deserved it <laughs> at the end. Um, but yeah, so 
yeah, I think both those teams need to get a win in in that final game. Peru and Ecuador, uh, the final game this this uh, this pair. Javier, this is the moment you might want to educate some of our listeners on what. Well, I I believe that Ecuador and Peru kind of had friendly relations, but that's not the case at all, is it? Okay, so short answer: No, definitely not. There's a very heated rivalry with Peru that like started decades ago, but it was just freshly rekindled. Uh, hopefully, hopefully that's the right word. Uh, <laughs> during the 90s, because there was a, a territorial war during the 90s between Peru and Ecuador that didn't end up very well. So this generation between like 20 and 40 have that image and that memory fresh in your head. So even though we are modern people that we can deal with individual uh, relationships as a whole the ecuadorian has a, a bad feeling towards the peru the peruvian country and i understand that it's the same from the other side given that i i have peruvian friends so it's it's a rivalry it's a very heated rivalry it's a very intense rivalry you can see it on the field you can see it by the way the, the way the game is approached you can see it the way the press cares about the media, you can see it in the newspapers, you can see it online, you can see it in social media, how people actually take this match very seriously. You can see it how in twenty in the 2002 qualifiers, Ecuador had a, a monumental game versus Peru, in which Agustin Delgado scored the second game and we beat Peru in Peru. And that was one of the key moments that we took towards feeling that we might get to our first World Cup, right? And that goal is constantly repeated in Ecuadorian TV before Ecuador plays just to get people pumped up and hyped. So we've been through, through some rough, rough moments, Peruvians, throughout our history. So no, it's not a friendly rivalry. No, it's not just about sports. There's, there's a serious rivalry and strong feelings between Peruvians and Ecuadorians will certainly make for an interesting backdrop for this upcoming match between those two sides. Well, listen, time has run on on us here. So quickly, I'll run over the fixtures for Tuesday's matches, uh, and then we'll wrap up with, with a bit of plugs before we sign off for the, the night here. Chile will go to La Paz to play Bolivia. Colombia hosting Brazil in Barranquilla. Ecuador in Peru to face off in Quito. Argentina will be hosting Venezuela in Buenos Aires, and then Paraguay will host Uruguay in Asuncion. We will be back recording on Tuesday night to wrap up those matches, so there'll be another quick pod here from the South American Football Show. But quickly, folks, where you can find us all on social media. Jesse, where can the listeners find you? Oh, uh, at Jesse Loesch on Twitter. And Adam, for you, anything that you'd like to plug and where you can be found on Twitter? Nothing to plug, just follow me at Adam Brandon 84 on Twitter. And Simon, for you? He's eating KFC again, I. <laughs> <laughs> How can you be in Colombia and eat KFC? That's really probably you missed that. I have the me. same thing. Hold on, I'm looking up how we find Simon on Twitter. Wait. He's at Simon Edwards SAF. I know that. Oh, there we go. That's how you can find Simon on Twitter. Yeah. Something, something. Just, KFC oh. and Vegado. Yeah, right. <laughs> Number 10. Yeah, whatever. And Javi, where can the listeners find you on Twitter? Well, you can find me at at ZAVXAV, and please feel free to tell me how much you disagree with me with me loving defensive football. 
And I am at Austin underscore James 906 on Twitter. Thank you so much for listening. As mentioned, we will be back directly after those matches on Tuesday with hopefully that pod coming out during the middle part of next week. Carnival World Cup qualifiers, always exciting. uh, And this year has been no different and should continue to be through the stretch. Once again, thanks for listening. uh, And that will be goodbye for now.